Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is M.K. Asante. His memoir is called Buck. It's published by Spiegel and Grau. And I'm delighted to have you on the show today, M.K. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love this book, and we're going to talk a lot about your story and how you got to be telling your story. And one of the things that struck me as I was reading this is that uh, you have been a published author since you were, like, 19? Yeah, like yeah. 1920. It's a really great success story, but the thing about Buck that is that it lays out just how difficult that success story was and how many how many things had to break the right way or, or even break the wrong way first yeah. in order for you to get that first poetry collection out when you were still a teenager. Yeah, I was around 19 and 20 um, when that first came out. But yeah, I wanted to, and, I, and that's why I, one of the reasons why I wrote Buck, I wanted to kind of show people what it was like, what this journey has been like. Sometimes people assume that, you know, oh, it's just it's easy to just, you must have had an easy kind of, but no, I wanted to let people know the struggles, that without struggle, there's no progress. And so Buck is really, you know, I wanted to focus on the hardships and how I overcame it. So let's set the stage for our listeners a little bit. This is set in like the mid-90s. Uh, you're growing up in Philadelphia. And tell us a little bit about your family at that point. Buck starts around 95, 96. Grew up in Philadelphia. I call it Philadelphia in the book, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, because of all the gun violence. And it really opens with my brother getting locked up. And that's a huge, my brother's like my idol. He's my hero, you know. He's the color of walnuts and has a long, sharp face like the African mask my dad hangs up on the walls. His name is Uzi. My parents call him Daoud. The hood calls him a whole bunch of names. Barkalark, Optimus Rhyme, Stilt the Kilt. And he's like a superhero to me. And so it opens up with my brother getting arrested. And that's kind of the beginning of the end for him. Um, it's also kind of the beginning of the crumbling of my family. Um, later on in that, in the opening of the book, my mom gets sent to a mental hospital, um, where she's suffering from severe bipolar and suicidal. She's suicidal. Later on, my dad leaves. And so the stage is really set for me around 14 years old, just alone, unsupervised in the city on the streets. So that's kind of where I get my education. You write about all the stuff that you're doing on the streets at 14, 15 in Philadelphia, you know, you're dealing and you're, you're going like all out in terms of like you still, <laughs> the money's coming in and you're just spending it as soon as you get it. Yeah. At 14, even without a license, you're, you're taking your mom's car. Yeah. I guess you're, you know, one of the things that I'm feeling as I'm reading this is like, I mean, your ability to sort of recapture that voice of what you were like, yeah. you know, just, you know, 15 years ago and to, to keep that voice very, it, I mean, it feels very authentically, it's not like, you know, a 30-year-old guy trying to recapture his 15-year-old voice. Yeah. It's your 15-year-old voice. Yeah, it really is. And it, I had to discover, rediscover it, unearth it <laughs> um, to write this book, because that's one of the things I didn't want to do when I wrote this memoir. I didn't want to write a book that was like an older guy reminiscing about his childhood or reflecting back on a child. I wanted to write it in the present tense. I wanted you to feel what I felt, when I felt it, how I felt it. I wanted you to have the epiphanies when I had the epiphanies. I wanted you to fall when I fell. And so the only way to do that in my mind was to write it in the first person present tense. And so that was, uh, that was the goal. And once I kind of found that voice again, it really just flowed. And I wanted to be raw with 
the stuff that I did and the stuff. There were times where I wondered to myself, like, should I include this? You know, it really happened. Mm-hmm. The question is, are are the readers ready for it? <laughs> um, ultimately, I always decided to to do it, to go with it, because I was questioning if readers, even young readers, were ready for it. But the reality was that I was going through it. Right. So we got to be ready for it. It's happening even right now. There's young bucks out there that are, that are running wild and, and running. And so the reality is that it's happening. It's out there and that, you know, you got to just confront these things head on. Being able to write about it when you're writing about it now, you have the self-awareness of how screwed up it was back then. But, you know, in trying to write about you're on the one hand, you're trying to write about it in a voice that sort of pushes that self-awareness out of the picture. Mm-hmm. I was struck by how, like, your mom's diaries sort of almost become that self-awareness mm. in a way. Like, mm. that it's like you're out there, you know, living your life, and every couple of chapters you're you're dipping back into your mom's diary, and, and she's laying out exactly what's wrong and what's fucked up about what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it, that sort of gives a balance to the story that you're telling, I think. Exactly. I mean, that's something that really happened. I would read my mom's diary and journal, and that's how I kind of understood what was going on with her to some extent. Very personal, raw, like you said, honest writing, precision about what was going on in the house, in the community, with her, her depression, everything. I think what it does is it provides... My voice is, like we talked about, present tense, first person, it's fast, I'm 14, I'm 15, so I'm going through all of this, and there isn't that introspection or self-reflective, you know, it's not really there. And then you hit my mom's voice, and the voice is very different, it slows you down, it kind of recontextualizes everything for you, makes you aware of other things that are happening around the situation. And yeah, I think it really works in like a really nice balance when you, when you have both of those. Yeah. Any memoir writer, especially someone who's writing about their family, you know, there, there comes that point where you got to have the conversation with your family about, yeah, yeah I'm, you know, I'm writing this story. These are the things that are happening. I want to put this in the story compounded here by the fact that when you have that conversation with your mom, it's like, mom, I want to, Put your diary into my book <laughs> for thousands of people to read. <laughs> well, hopefully millions. <laughs> millions, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I remember having that conversation with my mom, and my mom is a true artist. And one thing she said to me, she said, you got to use the memoir. She, I mean, you got to use the letters. She said, you got to use my journal entries. Um, she really told me that I had to do it just because she didn't want there to be she she didn't want there to be a stigma around people having mental illness she wanted people to understand and she felt like it would be helpful she thought that it would give other people strength and courage who are going through similar situations because one of the things we wanted to do with the book is like lay all that shit out there like you know let's not pretend that this doesn't exist or that we didn't go through this and try to paint some false picture you know what I mean like let's be real about what happened and who we are and but also how we grew from that and how it made us stronger and made us better and made us more united as a family so because she's an artist she's a dancer a choreographer she understood the need to express myself and the need for those letters to really be helpful so she said use them as you please that was her thing and with your dad, you know, you got to have that conversation. Man. It's like, Dad, I want to go back and revisit the time that our relationship was, you know, rock bottom. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it ends with you guys starting to get back together, but yeah. it's like the, the period of your life you're writing about with your dad. It, like I say, it's it's rock bottom rough. Yeah, it is rough with him. His thing was you got to tell your story. That was the thing, and then even in writing a memoir. I had to get to a point, even before I think I had, I don't know if it was before or after I had those conversations with my parents and my brother, but I had to get to a point where I didn't give a fuck. You can't write a memoir trying to please your mom or your dad or your brother or your family members or your friends. You have to write your story. And in order to do that and to write something worthwhile to me, you have to not really be that concerned about how other people are going to take it. You know what I mean? Because if you are, then you're going to write something that's that's BS. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I had to get to that point mentally. I think the hardest part of writing this book was getting to the point where I just didn't care anymore. Like, I didn't care what people thought. That's, I think, the most difficult thing, even as just human beings, like, living our life. Like, we we always care what people think. What are these people going to think if I do this? What are people going to think if I do this? But getting to that point where it's like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to tell my story, and if I do it right, then I know people are going to relate to it. It's going to resonate with them. It's going to empower them, uplift them. But if I'm not true to me and I'm trying to please everyone, then it's going to sound like some shit that's trying to please everyone. Yes, yeah, cool that you're talking about like getting to that point where you can write that way. Because one of the key things about Buck, I think, is... After you've, you've come back, your, your mom's got you to go back into school, and you're, you're in an alternative school in Philadelphia. And that moment you describe when you finally feel ready even just to write at all yeah. about what's going on in your life and in your head. I mean, up until that point, you had been very firm in just sort of pushing the whole system, the whole structure, the whole society yeah. out of your picture. And, and now you're at the point where it's like, I can actually put something on this page and it will mean something. Yeah, that was really the most powerful kind of transformative pivotal moment for me is just having that blank page and looking at it as an ocean of possibility and and kind of staring into the blank page and seeing myself and starting to realize that I am a blank page in a lot of ways and that I can write my my future and my own kind of script. That was really powerful for me. And, you know, when I started to, when I found my purpose with writing, it changed everything in my life. And the way you talk about it in terms of not just that that's the moment that you became a writer, but also that's the moment you became a, a, a reader, too. Exactly. I mean, my teacher told me, you know, if you want to be a good writer, you got to be a great reader. I took that to heart, and she gave me a book, and it was on the road, actually. And then she gave me another book. She gave me How. She gave me a bunch of books from the Beat Generation. And I hadn't really read before that. You know, I wasn't a, a big reader at the time. Um, years had gone by since I'd even looked at a book <laughs> mm-hmm. you know we used to use the only thing i used to use books for for the roll blunts on <laughs> you know what i'm saying so but when i read on the road and some of the beat stuff i was struck at first by first of all damn you can write this stuff that they're writing because they were writing about drugs and sex and you know rebellion and the writing i was exposed to before then in school was not like that you right. know what i mean so i was kind of surprised that wow, these guys are writers and they wrote stuff like this and it's praised. I said, well, huh, this is, I feel definitely connected to this, their sense of madness and chaos and rebellion and outlaws and rule breakers. That resonated with me. You know what I mean? That was the first thing that struck me. And then as I began to read more and more and I started to kind of 
find out who they were inspired by and read those people and then started reading more and more and more, I, I started to realize the great power that w- was in the written word and that, the you know, I started to realize, I had an epiphany once where I realized why it was illegal for slaves to read. And I always heard that, but I never understood it. You know, oh, slavery used to be, people used to say, that old people would say things like, oh, you know, back in the day we couldn't read, you know, so make sure you read. All right, what does that mean to a 15-year-old? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. What is that? But when I started reading, I realized, wow, we think in words. We, we, sub, we sub-vocalize. And so if you limit someone's words by limiting their vocabulary and the words that they're exposed to, you're also limiting their thoughts. You can't even think about freedom because you don't have the language or tools to access that. And so when I came to that realization, it made me want to read everything and have, you know, a really extensive vocabulary so that I would never feel limited or be limited by what I, you know, my sub-vocalization, so. And it sounds like that's, as you write about it, that that's the moment that it really sort of clicked for you, that, like, because you grew up, your dad was sort of, like, the founding proponent of Afrocentrism. Yes. And very much a, a vocal and a fiercely vocal advocate for, like, Afrocentric culture. Yeah. But it sounds like a lot of that stuff only really clicked with you once you really started reading the, the, into the into the literature and into the pantheon of, of those great black writers. Yeah, definitely. When you're a kid, you just want to be normal, quote unquote, whatever that means. Do what your friends are doing, hang out, whatever. And so, a lot of you know, me and me for both me and my brother, a lot of the Afrocentric stuff. You know, when we were coming up, it was like. You know what I mean? Stuff that we like, oh, here he goes again. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You know, come on, Dad. Why can't we just celebrate Christmas like everybody else? You know what I mean? Why we have to do all this extra? Your friends asking you questions. You know, my dad, he wore a dashiki every day. So my friends are asking me, you know, what's up with your dad? Is, is he from Africa? Well, not really. Um, <laughs> but kind of, you know, because mm-hmm. he's born in Georgia. He's from Georgia. Try to explain to your 15, 14-year-old friends what Afrocentricity is and why my dad is wearing a dashiki and why the house has all this African stuff in it. But I always felt like a bridge to some extent between Africa and African Americans because I grew up with parents that told me about Africa and who I was. And so I always kind of felt proud of who I was. And so when my friends started to kind of you get to an age where your friends are like, you're making fun of, you know, Africans and they think that that's it's not cool at all. I always, that took me by surprise at first because I'm like, well, in my house, Africa was shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like here, it's different. You know, in public school, it's different. Kids are laughing if you say you're from Africa. So I always felt like I had to kind of bridge that gap and kind of let them know. And I, I realized later on why my parents were like that. It's really the kind of just balance you out because you do hear so much negative stuff about Africa and African culture and stuff like that. So even to just kind of be a balanced, sane person and be just naturally proud of who you are and you kind of have to get kind of that other side of like seriously, you know, praising Africa and all that stuff just to kind of get balanced. And so, yeah, I think later on I I appreciated it. But when I was coming up and in the book, it's kind of like, also, when you have a dad that that's like my dad, when you're young, and even today, I mean, he's just pops. He's not this figure that other people might see him as. So you don't really care about all that stuff. You're like, Dad, what's up with, are we going to the game? Are you coming to my game? You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't care about 
that other stuff that has nothing to do with you know me as a 15 year old you know right. what I mean it's like you can be that guy on CNN for it, everybody else exactly like, to me your pops to me your pops and what's up what are we doing you know what's <laughs> where are you <laughs> so that's kind of how that was you talk about when you started writing and and once you really got into it you know just wanting to write I mean these are my words not yours but wanting to write like one of everything it's like I'm going to write poetry, I'm going to write a memoir, I'm going to write a film, I'm going to do all these things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these different forms of telling your story out there, and people are using all the, you know, reading or watching all these different forms. So it's like, you want to get the most people, you got to be doing it as many different ways as you can. And that's something that it looks like over the last decade or so. I mean, like we said, you, your, your poems came out when you were like 19, 20, and since then you've written movies You've written other things. This is your first memoir. So, I mean, it sounds like, like I say, I mean, you're, you're, as a writer, you're pretty open to like, well, how am I going to tell this story? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's all, they're all like different languages, you know? And so your ability, you know, it's like if you know Spanish, it would be easier for you to learn Portuguese because there's connected, there's similarities there. You know what I mean? And then your once you learn, the more languages you learn, your ability to acquire new languages also increases. So people who that's why people speak you know five, six, seven languages because once you kind of get over the hump of one or two languages, you can easily pick up other languages because you understand principles that all languages have and just you just understand how to do those things and so for me that's how writing is it's like sometimes i get an idea and it's a poem sometimes i get an idea and it's a memoir sometimes i get an idea and it's a movie sometimes i get an idea and it's all of that buck is uh, a book it's going to be a movie it's a soundtrack it's you know it, it has a lot of different languages that it can kind of be conveyed through so i i just try to let the spirit moved me in a sense. I don't really like, you would think maybe I kind of premeditate everything and say, well, I'm going to do this first and I'm going to do that and that, but that's not how I work. I just work off of inspiration and what's the best way to tell this story. For Buck, it was clearly a memoir. I knew I had to write that. But then, like I said, it has other life forms, you know, like movie and soundtrack. Yeah, for me, I always wanted to be multilingual when it comes to art photography, painting. I mean, I don't want to close the door on art in any way because there's always each medium kind of each language has nuances that maybe can't be expressed in another language, you know, so you have to, you know, it has to be a song because there's certain things you can do in music that you might not be able to do on the page or it has to be a memoir because there's things that you can do in memoir that you can't do in a song. I really want to be open. I I feel not I feel, I'm an artist, and so I want to be open to all art. Yeah, the music, yeah, there's a lot of, of rapid hip-hop lyrics throughout this book. Anybody got any questions about what you were listening to in 95, 96? <laughs> that's settled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, can, they can just look through there. Yeah, hip-hop is a soundtrack for my life. I, I described it when we were coming up. We had hip-hop Tourette's. Wherever we are, we just hip hop, just lyrics just bursted out of us. No matter what we were doing, playing basketball, walking down the street in class, hip hop to rest, man, we can't control it. So I wanted to sprinkle those in to kind of show you my mind and my reality. Everyone I knew was like that. It's normal. It's still to this day. I still have hip hop to rest. I still walk down the street and just random lyrics come to my head. It's part of it's part of my reality. So I wanted to, I, I wanted the book to be musical. 
not just by quoting rap lyrics, but even by the way that it's written, the rhythm, you know what I mean? To me, music is one of the highest forms of art. I mean, I don't really put them on, there's no hierarchy there, but for me, music is sacred. And if you can do something on the page that gives people that same energy as music, then I think you're winning as a writer. There are definite differences between poetry that you quote towards the end of the book and, you know, your memoir voice. I mean, there are, you can point to the differences. I mean, that's a memoir, that's poetry. But it's like, I mean, underneath that, it's it's definitely, these are, there's a consistent MK voice yeah. going through all that. Yeah. yeah and and that, I'm sure that voice shows up in, uh, you know, the other genres that you're playing with. Yeah, exactly. It's like, even when, even when I speak French, you know, comment allez-vous, je m'appelle MK. I mean, it's still me, you know what I mean? It's another language, but it's, it's still me. And so we can never really get away from ourselves. And the key to writing a memoir for me is embracing yourself, who you are, the good, the bad, the ugly, and making being the best you <laughs> yeah and you mentioned how it's like there's not really a master plan here there's not like a, a a checklist you're moving where inspiration takes you so i'm wondering like maybe another facet of that is how often do you sort of like step back and take stock i mean especially looking at where things were 15 some years ago as you're writing about here in buck and go whoa how did i get from there <laughs> to here <laughs> I, I do that. It's in some of the music, you know. Sometimes I got a new verse where I say, you know, um, on the road to success, many obstacles. I remember when they said it wasn't possible, when they was like, it's really just improbable. And they told me my dreams illogical. But now it's... So anyway, I, I reflect on that sometimes in, in poetry and music. But honestly, there's so much that I want to do that I haven't done yet. And... I don't get it. I don't really sit back and like do that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always pushing. I'm always like, well, what's next? Like, how do we, I, I was in the um, train station when I was coming here and, um, you know, I'm incredibly excited about Buck. It just got its second printing. It just went into a second printing already. Um, but I was in a train station, went in the bookstore, I didn't see my book. I'm like, where the fuck is Buck? Like, you know, I'm I'm not, everything is great, but we still got a long way to go. You know, how come Buck isn't here? How come we, we're not here? How come there's so many things that I want to do? And so I feel like constantly, you know, I have a new song called Hungry and Foolish. I mean, I, I'm hungry for, for more because there's so much that I want to do. There's so much that I want to say that I haven't even said yet. And so... Yeah, I look back and I'm like, that's what's up. But I know that I can't just chill. I'm, the, I'm just not that kind of person anyway to just say, oh, man, you know, I've come so far. And now I can just chill and relax. And I'm from Philly, you know, my family. I still got people to take care of in, in my life. So we're going hard. And <laughs> there's a long way to go. So what is next for you? You mentioned that you're working on turning Buck into a film. Yeah, I'm working on, I'm writing a script right now. So Buck is going to be a movie. And then also working on a soundtrack to Buck, which is going to be um, original music from me and from other guest artists mixed with excerpts from the book. So with some of the songs, instead of a chorus, it's an excerpt from the book. 
me reading like the audio book over music and then the verse will start again and it'll be rap and then it'll be you know so it, there's there's interludes there's all types it's really a fun project to work on the soundtrack and then i'm also working on um another a new idea for a book i have a novel and so i'm working on that working on an album music album so just uh you know trying to stay busy <laughs> Great. well that sounds really cool and look forward to a lot of stuff coming out in the months ahead. In the meantime, apart from that one bookstore at the train station, you should be able to find Buck <laughs> out pretty soon. It's, uh, it's Buck, a memoir published by Spiegel and Grau. I've been talking to the author, M.K. Asante. I'm Ron Hogan, and this has been Life Stories. I hope you'll tune in for another episode soon. Thanks very much.